0: if you are in Christ, it is impossible for God to be disappointed in you. What about this glory of Jesus? Look at John 17, verse 5 and verse 24. Remember when Jesus talks about God restoring his glory. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He says again, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus, here is the high priestly prayer. This is the night of his arrest. And he prays twice, actually more than twice in that whole passage, saying to God, God, restore to me the glory that was mine before the foundation of the world. What glory is Jesus talking about? May I suggest He's not talking about the glory of being the Son of God. He's not talking about the glory of the second person of the Trinity because He never stopped that. May I suggest that the glory that Jesus is talking about is the glory of being mediator? The glory of being redeemer? the glory of being the one who would lay down His perfect life for a sinful people? Why does Jesus ask this? Because in a few hours, in time, He is going to do what He did before the foundation of the world, which was become mediator. As He goes to the cross, in time, He becomes the mediator that He was prior to time. And so that's why he says, glorify your son in this way, as mediator, with the same glory as mediator that I had prior to time. Which, by the way, on a side note, do you know the main theme of our worship in eternity? It's repeated numerous times in the book of the Revelation. The main theme of our worship is the lamb that was slain. We will worship for eternity, not just the Messiah, but the Messiah who specifically was slain for us. So that's the kind of worship we give Jesus forever. If that is the worship that pleases Jesus, if, if if he is pleased by his people worshiping him as mediator for eternity, and in eternity past, he was worshiped as mediator. And then when he's about to go to the cross, he says, Father, it's important to me that the glory of being mediator is restored to me. If it's this important to Jesus to be recognized in worship as mediator, then shouldn't that be the driving force behind our worship now? To worship him as mediator, as slain, as the one who gives himself for us. We are right to put that front and center of our thoughts of Jesus, of our worship of Jesus. Because Jesus was always, has always been the lamb that was slain. So why is this? Why is Paul saying this to us? Does Paul just want to make us cross eyed, trying to think about these impossible concepts to, to ponder as we are finite human beings? Is he, he just wanting to show off his revelations or his intelligence? Why is he saying all this to us? He's not saying this to us because he wants to see us spin our wheels trying to understand the ununderstandable. He's saying to this, he's saying this to us to give us a sense of absolute surety. Of absolute confidence, of absolute certainty. Remember his larger point. He wants these believers in Ephesus to know, to truly know who they are in Christ. And so he wants them to see just with, with what certainty, with what surety you are in Christ. This wasn't some Johnny-come-lately thing that just happened last month when you were baptized. This was the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. What could be more certain than that? This was the freest choice that God could make. His choice was not predicated upon anything, upon any experience, upon any sort of happening or development. You know, all of our decisions, all of our choices, are predicated upon some experience or some situation or some some condition. Everything, all of your choices are conditioned by some kind of experience you've had. You make no choice that is unconditioned by anything. God's choice of His people was because we didn't exist. What was there to condition? His choice. And so God's choice of us was the freest that it could possibly have been. God's choice of his people wasn't based on, well, these others that I tried, they didn't quite work out. And so I know I won't make that mistake again. Or I know I'm not going to choose this kind of person again because they sure are a pain to deal with. Or uh, I don't think it's going to work out here because I tried that once. His choice of his people is utterly unconditioned. It would be like, oh, I don't know, uh, the choice of your spouse. And choose, instead of choosing your spouse, as you probably chose your spouse, instead, maybe you chose your spouse before meeting him or her. Maybe you chose your spouse before your parents met him or her. Maybe you chose your spouse before your spouse was born. Maybe you chose your spouse before you were born. That would be getting close to the type of choice that God made. But wait, wait. Not only did you choose your spouse before you and they were born, but you you chose your spouse knowing that your spouse would repeatedly be unfaithful. Knowing that your spouse would tell all kinds of jokes about you behind your back. Knowing that your spouse would get you into debt trouble. Knowing that your spouse was going to be a terrible cook and terrible housekeeper or whatever. Now that's coming close to God's choice of His people. Totally unconditioned. Totally totally uh, free. The freest possible choice that God could have made. Which is why we are right to say today, if you are in Christ, it is impossible for God to be disappointed in you. If you are in Christ, it is impossible for God to be disappointed in you. How do we say that? Disappointment comes from unmet expectations, doesn't it? Disappointment comes from expecting something and somebody didn't quite live up to it or the situation didn't quite live up to it. If God chose you before creating you and God placed you in union with Christ before you existed, And from the moment of creating you, He created you in union with Christ. How could He be disappointed with you today? Now, that's not the same thing as as saying God's never disappointed in our sin. But what I'm saying is God is never disappointed in us as a person. We are wrong to think, boy, I guess I just didn't turn out like God wanted me to. I'm sure God looks down at me and wishes I'd done this and hoped that I'd done that differently and just was hoping for bigger things for my life. Ephesians 1 verse 4 won't let us say that. It is impossible for the God who first conceived you, conceiving you in union with Christ, it is impossible for Him to be disappointed. So, here is... The first two phrases, and there there is much more that could be said about that. And hopefully, again, these are such huge concepts. It's impossible to exhaust them, it's impossible to even fully understand them or explain them. But the Paul's whole point, Paul's point here, which is my point, the whole point is not that we understand all the ins and outs about the mind of God, but Paul's point is worship him. Worship Him. This is the God who chose his people from the foundation of the world. Worship him.